Well, as many of you know, I've uh, had the privilege of tutoring at Parkview Elementary for the past five years now, and I'm doing something a little bit different this year. Uh, instead of just being in one class one day a week, I'm uh, splitting my time kind of half and half. So the first half of my, my day on Tuesday is um, tutoring uh, third graders in, in reading, and then the second half, I actually get to be in our very own Janelle Carney's class, uh, working with uh, fourth graders on their writing skills. And uh, w one class a couple weeks back, Mrs. Carney was teaching her students about how to write good stories. And of course, one of the secrets to a good story is believable characters. Um, and what makes a good character? Well, somebody who uh, isn't too good to be true, someone who is too evil to be true. It's got to be somebody with a little bit of conflict inside. So I'm working with this uh, young friend of mine, and he's telling me about the story he wants to write. And the story is all about a Boy Scout who's just really good at survival. And the main character is based on himself, okay? And, uh, oh man, he's got all the plot points figured out and all these great adventures he's going to have and how he saves the day, day, uh, time after time after time. And, and it was really fun, but there's something was missing in the story. And since he was basing the character on himself, I said to this young man, uh, do you have any fears, uh, like personally? And he thought, he goes... Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I'm not afraid of any of the animals in Washington, but I'd be afraid if I saw a tiger or a lion. And so into his story, he, he is on a San Juan Island. I don't want to give it away because you're going to want to read this story someday. It'll be famous. But he comes across a tiger that should never have been there. And what happens in the story is he has to overcome this character flaw, this fear. And it was a much better story as a result. Last week we started the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And you want to talk about good characterization. Look no further than the story of Joseph. These characters are full of flaws and yet there is promise. There is hope. And so much about what makes this Joseph saga uh, so endearing is the way that these characters don't stay the same. They are shaped through experiences, and they're shaped by the choices they make, and they're shaped by God's grace. And I think, I know, that that's all something that we can identify with. I don't think any of you are the same as you were last year or ten years ago, uh, etc. Now last week we read Genesis 37, and how Joseph, who is Jacob's favorite son, had a dream that one day he would rule over his brothers and even over his parents. And after telling them all about this dream, his brothers conspired to do away with him. And one brother in particular named Judah had the bright idea to sell their own brother to a band of slave traders. At the close of the chapter, we learn that Joseph had been taken by these slave traders all the way down to Egypt, where he was sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar, we know, it was the, uh, the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh himself. Well, with that, let's begin chapter 38. Chapter 38 divides very nicely into two sections. And so what I'm going to do first is read the first section, which is the first 11 verses. And I actually want to pray before I read this time. Usually I read the pray. Just mix it up a little bit. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we are thankful and believe that it is more than a story and more than history. Uh, but it is a living word. Frankly, Lord, this story uh, 
is, is a weird one. And uh, we ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would illuminate it for us, that you would speak to us, that you uh, would deliver the message for each heart here, uh, just what they need from you, Lord, whether it's encouragement or, 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 or um, Lord, conviction. Lord, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, first 11 verses. It came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Herah. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her. And raise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So he took his life also. When Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. All right, how do we approach this? Here's what I want to do. I want to ask you to think like a storyteller for a minute. Think like you're creating a film, you're creating a play, you're creating a novella, whatever it is. Okay, you're writing a story. And ask yourself, as a storyteller, why is this chapter here? Why'd you put it in my Bible? That's what I want to know. Uh, I mean, we're just getting into the saga about Joseph, and he's been sold to a prominent man in Egypt. I want to find out what's going to happen to him personally. What is all this stuff now about Judah? And besides... Doesn't this seem just a little out of place? I mean, I'm not sure what's, what the story is doing in the Bible in the first place. It's kind of depressing, a little bit raunchy. I mean, right, let's just look at the facts of the story. And it's interesting that if we skip right over chapter 38 and go into 39, it would seem very natural. In fact, let me read to you the end of 37 and the beginning of 39. So the end of 37 uh, says, and he, and he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So Jacob is mourning Joseph. And then the narrator says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now let's skip 38 and go to 39. And it starts like this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And it goes blah, 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 blah. So it's all about Joseph. That seems completely natural to me. Doesn't it? It should go 37, 39... Why is 38 there? What is it doing in my Bible, messing up my story? Think like a storyteller now. 
There's a few reasons why you might want to put the story of Judah in there. First of all, think about it. This isn't just a story that somebody made up. This is stuff that happened to the people of God. So you've got all this information. Say you're a biographer or a historian. You've got all these stories, and you've got to write them down for the people of God. So generations later in Bellingham in 2013, people can read it and have sermons on it. So you get to organize all all this material. And you throw in this flashback scene right in the middle of two chapters... There could be a reason for that, just some tension, some literary artistry. Wait for it. You know, you've got to wait, wait to get to Joseph. So it could build tension. A second reason is to remind us that this whole saga about the patriarchs, and as badly as we want to know what happens to Joseph, it's the, the stories are not primarily about them. All of Genesis, all of the Bible, is primarily about God. It's about God's plan. It's about God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's sons. It's about God's faithfulness to His covenant and to His covenant people, despite their flaws. So chapter 38 tips us off to what we're going to learn on later. Uh, Spoiler alert, right? Judah will be the brother through whom the covenant continues, not Joseph. Pretty good reason to put a story about Judah there then. If this story is about God and his faithfulness to this family, then they want a story about the brother who the line is going to continue on. But there's a third reason, and the reason I want to emphasize, and I think the reason is development of character. So you remember back when I was mentioning uh, Mrs. Carney's class and how she said good characters are believable, how they go through a process, right? Um, In chapter 37, Judah is basically a low-level dirtbag of a brother. Can I say that? I just did. Um, he, He sells his own flesh and blood into slavery. That's low. And by chapter 43, six chapters later, Judah is going to risk his own life for another brother. In chapter 37, Judah lies to his father, says... Your favorite son is dead. He basically causes his father infinite grief. By chapter 43, Judah will risk his own life to protect his father from grief. How does Judah become a new man? What does that process look like? How is his character formed? I believe chapter 38 exists to fill in those gaps. But before we can jump to all this good news of chapter 43, uh, real life happens, right? And in real life, usually it gets worse before it gets better. Uh, So, first, our setting of the story. We get a time marker. We learn that at the time that Joseph was sold into slavery, Judah quickly moved over to Canaan. Uh, Enter discordant Soundtrack. If this was a movie, maybe some Johnny Greenwood, little uh, violin. This is not going to end well for Judah. Like we've learned this over and over again. When, when they're not going into conquest in Canaan, it's not going to go well. So Judah takes his little family up to, up to Canaan. And further, we learn that he, he hangs out with this uh, guy, Hira, uh, the Adulamite. That's a Canaanite guy. And so he doesn't even hang out with his covenant-keeping brothers. He goes and makes friends with this uh, Canaanite man, this Adulamite, Hira. So from the get-go, we see that Judah 
One of the bearers of the covenant of God is choosing to put the covenant line in danger by moving to Canaan. Judah goes further. He marries a Canaanite woman, something his father and his great-grandfather and his great-great-grandfather would have big issues with. With his wife, he has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Great names, right? Uh, So he has these kids with the Canaanite wife. Assuming that Judah wastes no time getting married, he's been away from Joseph for about 18 to 19 years before Ur... It's my favorite name. Uh, Onan just reminds me of a generator. I don't know if anybody... Okay. But uh, Ur is old enough to marry. And so then Judah brokers a a marriage for him with another Canaanite woman named Tamar. So not only is Judah putting the covenant in jeopardy by marrying a Canaanite himself, he's going even further away from the people of God by choosing a Canaanite woman for his son. And what we see next is a further window into the destruction of Judah's character. First, his oldest son, Ur, dies. We don't know what he did. It says that he was evil. And what's interesting is that in Hebrew, uh, evil, re, is the exact opposite of how Ur is formed. So there's a little fun play on words there. Uh, We don't know exactly what he did, but God took him and his life before he had any children with Tamar. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern custom, it was uh, customary for the next oldest brother in line to then marry or have children with the dead brother's wife. And those children would carry the name of the older deceased brother. That's kind of weird. So, think about it like this. Judah, this patriarch has all this inheritance. The oldest brother would get the double share. And then the oldest brother's children would trump the younger brothers. So if Onan then takes Tamar and has children with her, and one is a son, that boy that he just helped procreate would beat him, would trump him in receiving the inheritance. I know it's kind of a funny system. So Onan is quite the dirtbag. He doesn't say no to this arrangement. In fact, he sleeps with Tamar, and uh, the way that the grammar is, it suggests he does it over and over again. Uh, but So he doesn't think that's out of line. Sure, I'll sleep with this lady, but he spilled his seed onto the ground. And let me just... There's a lot written about this, about uh, the evils of birth control. This has nothing to do with birth control. This has everything to do with Onan's selfishness and not wanting to produce a rival to his inheritance. Okay? So the Lord uh, thinks that Onan is evil now and he gets taken out as well. We end this section of the story. And this is... Not really happy stuff, but just stay with me. Uh, We end this section of the story with an indictment against Judah's evil heart. First of all, notice the difference between Jacob and Judah. In chapter 37, Judah believes Joseph is dead, and he goes into mourning. He goes into such mourning that he says, I will never be consolable for the rest of my life. This story, Judah loses two sons, boom, boom, back to back, no mention of mourning, no mention of sorrow, all, all that's mentioned by the story is this pragmatic, okay, who's next in line? Let's get this chick married off. And now, um, and now he's got another problem. See, the narrator tells us that Ur and Onan were killed because they were evil, that God killed them. 
Judah doesn't even consider God in his worldview. Doesn't even consider he's part of the picture. And Judah thinks that those men died because Tamar is some kind of black widow. That she's cursed. And so he is afraid to give his son, Shelah, to her to be married. So he tells her, Hey, Tamar, why don't you go live with your dad, with your family, and just wait as a widow until Shelah gets a little older, and then I'll hook you guys up. But the narrator tells us, but he didn't, you know, he was never going to do that. He deceived Tamar. So all in all, the first 11 verses are not happy. They cover about 20 years of time. Uh, and we, now we get into verses 12 through 30, which will slow down dramatically. So think about this. Chapter 38, verses 1 through 11, about 20-ish years. And now we're going to read the rest of the chapter, one to two years. Okay? So, and what that tells us is that this is the focus of the chapter. All right, now check this out. I got I'm context. Okay, so go live with your dad, for he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brother. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now starting chapter 12. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. And he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. What a pickup line. Uh, sorry, that's not in the Bible. Uh, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road of Anaim? But they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place say, There's been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, otherwise we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you didn't find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she's also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with a child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these? And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, insomuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. 
and he did not have relations with her again. It came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was Zerah. Wow. Couldn't make this stuff up. So the narrator tells us considerable time has passed. Judah's wife has died. And in those days when someone in your family died, there was a a cultural assumption, a norm called the period of mourning. You would wear black or sackcloth and you would make yourself look all disheveled. You wouldn't go to any cool festivals. You wouldn't have a good time. And you're supposed to be in this period of mourning. Actually, I think compared to what our culture does, it's uh, a little bit healthier than what we do, but um, that's another discussion we can have a different time. But, so, this period of mourning, let's say it lasts a, a couple weeks, uh, 40 days perhaps, uh, it changes culture to culture, we don't know at this time, but there's a period of mourning, it's over, and Judah, I'm over it! Let's go to the sheep shearing festival, which is basically a pagan drunken festival where, yeah, they shear, uh, shear some sheep, but it's, it, it's basically... In pagan lands like Canaan, there is a a God behind everything in nature. There's a God that makes the wind blow and the sheep wool go. And when you shear it off, you give homage to the God. And you usually do that by sleeping with temple prostitutes and drinking lots of wine. And so guys like to go to this. So I know my wife just died, but the time period for mourning is up. I'm gone. And he goes to the sheep shearing festival. He's done his duty. And of course, who's he with? His great influence, the Canaanite guy, right? Well, meanwhile, Tamar learns about this, and she learns the detail, or or we learn the detail, that she is still in widow's garb. Way after Onan and Ur have died, she's still in widow's garb. She still has loyalty. She still respects and loves the people she lost. And you're starting to see this contrast in their character. Tamar is a noble woman. Well, she learns that Shelah uh, has come of age, and Judah is not giving uh, him for marriage. So, she takes matters into her own hands. All right? Now, you have to appreciate the fact that in those days, Judah would have been expected to care for Tamar, his daughter-in-law. He would have had to do one of three things. Marry her to her next oldest son, Shelah, set her free from her obligation so she could legally go marry again, or marry her himself, produce a child with her, all right? That would continue on the bloodline. Judah does none of these things. And so Tamar, man, I like her sass. She comes up with a bold plan. She removes her widow's garb. She dresses like a prostitute with a veil over her face. Judah leaves the party, uh, probably wasted, uh, controlled by his lust, sees her, and we all know the line, I just read it, uh, and, and has relations with Tamar. Tamar fishes for a price, and ironically enough, Judah offers a goat. A goat! Ah, where have we seen a goat before? A goat is involved in the deception of Isaac. 
by Jacob and involved in the deception of Jacob by Judah. And ironically, now Judah is being fooled uh, or, or he's being deceived and a goat is involved. Just little fun stuff there. Poetic justice. Well, Jacob doesn't exactly have the goat there. So what, you know, what do you want for collateral? And she basically asks for, you know, she asks for his seal, his cord, and his staff. And basically she's asking for, I want your fingerprints, I want your driver's license, and I want your credit cards. That would be the equivalent. That's how important these things were. Now Judah wants to get all his stuff back as soon as possible. So he sends his friend the Adulamite to deliver the goat. Now of course Tamar is nowhere to be found. The locals say there's no prostitute ever on this road. What are you talking about? Now Judah is worried about something. Can you guess what it is? Himself. Of course. He's worried about himself. He's worried about his reputation. Have you ever gone into a bar where they have the wall of shame? With the, you know, all the fake IDs and people's pictures right there. Or all the people that have like bought for minors. They put their driver's license right up there on the wall of shame. Well, Judah wants to avoid the wall of shame. Because Tamar's basically got his fingerprints, his credit cards, uh, you know, all of the stuff that can make him out in public. His attention shifts, though, when new news comes to him that his sweet daughter-in-law is pregnant. Being a widow and set aside to marry Sheila, she would technically be guilty of adultery. And by the law, could be stoned. But he just flips out and says, let's burn her. I mean, this is like punishment that is not even on the books. It's ridiculously extreme. And what a double standard, right? That's that's crazy. He's just with a prostitute. Now he's condemning his daughter-in-law before he has any of the facts. It's all hearsay. Plus, let's face it, it's his fault that she's not married to his own son. And I just, as I was meditating on on this this week, isn't that how we often are? I don't know. It seems like sometimes we could be most judgmental with the people who have the same issues we do. Because it's like when we see those issues in other people, it's like looking into a mirror and it makes us feel crappy about ourselves. So it's a good reminder, I think, of a side, a side point here in the story, um, you know, to consider the log in our own eye before we try and take the speck out of a brother or sisters. All right, how's everybody doing? It's been a lot of work to get to this point. That's part of the, you know, what you get when you preach through these, uh, these long narratives. Okay, you okay? All right, shake it off because I'm about ready to get there. Now, I want to, before we get to the... To the crescendo, uh, I want us to consider Tamar for a moment. A Canaanite woman, right? She has no claim to the promise. She's born a pagan. She ought to be an enemy of God's people. And I wonder if during those two short years or parts of two years, when she was married to Ur and married to Onan and the family used to get together, I wonder if she heard little bits and pieces of the story of God through this family. I wonder if she heard a little bit about the promise of God to this covenant people. Did she find out about those promises? I think she did. I think it captured her heart and her imagination. And I think it's the only thing that explains why Tamar would go to such great lengths to bear a child with this particular family where the guys keep dying on her and the dad is a complete jerk. 
Okay, she could have really, she could have skipped town. She could have um, talked to her father to, to leverage to get out of this thing and marry a Canaanite man. Uh, there are easier ways to handle this thing, but she is so loyal to this family. And the only way I can explain that, logically, is that she is captured by the story of God and this family of promise. And now she's in the public square with a belly bulging full of evidence. There's no denying the fact that she's with child and it ain't Sheila's child, alright? So she's guilty. And there she is. And then she says these four familiar words. Say them with me. Please examine and see. Please examine and see. Does that sound at all familiar? When Judah masterminded the selling of his brother to slave traders, his brothers dipped Joseph's cloak in goat's blood and brought it to their father and said, Please examine and see. Please examine and see that this cloak is your son's. And ironically, Tamar echoes these very words. Please examine and see whose signet ring, whose cords, and whose staff are these. This is the moment of truth in the story. Judah has chosen his life. He has started down a road of evil when he sold his little brother into slavery. You know, you build your life, you build your character one decision at a time. It's kind of like building a house one piece at a time. When you make good decisions, decisions that honor God, decisions of love, you build good character, you build a good life, you build a house out of materials that last. But when you make evil choices over and over again, choices that hurt others, choices that are only motivated for self-gratification, you build your house out of rotten materials. And it will crumble and fall. And sometimes, when you've made enough evil choices in a row, you start telling yourself, that's who I am. I'm in so deep, I can't see a way out. And sometimes, oftentimes, it takes a miracle or a huge event to help you see that you can still be forgiven, that you can still change. I think when Judah heard the words, please examine and see, he went back to that pivotal moment in his life, the source of his greatest shame, selling his flesh and blood as a common slave. Now, he's standing in the public square, humiliated by Tamar, convicted of his sin, if it's as if there was a mirror in front of Judah, but instead of seeing his face in the mirror, he sees his character in the mirror and all of its ugliness. And Judah has a choice, and I need you to, to understand this. Judah is a prominent man. Judah could have denied those claims right there. And in that culture where men had so much sway, and prominent men especially... He could have denied this thing and had Tamar stoned right on the spot. Or he could repent. He could change. He could start building a new house, a new life, with good materials, with good decisions. And these are the most important words in the story. 
she is more righteous than I. And I don't know why they do this to make things flow better, but the more literal rendering of the Hebrew is, she is righteous, not I. She is righteous, not I. All out in public. And what we know is that the worst sins can be forgiven. Uh, Jen read earlier from Psalm 51 where David cries out from his gut, from his heart for forgiveness after murdering someone, after committing adultery. Broken, he cries out. And we know that David is forgiven, that he's exalted as a man after God's own heart. But this actually reminds me of another story in Scripture. It's the story of Peter the Apostle, one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter was warming himself around a charcoal fire, says the Gospel of John. And three times in public he denies even knowing Jesus. In Luke's Gospel it says on the third time that Peter denied Christ, he sees Jesus being dragged off for his mock trial. They meet eyes. Can you imagine that scene? And Peter is crushed. He goes away weeping. He's a broken man. Peter, the man who was chosen to be a fisher of men, goes back to being a fisher of stinky fish. He's lost. Destroyed. And one morning, Peter is fishing. And he gets to the beach. And there's a charcoal fire going. And I wonder if the smell of that fire brought him back to his ultimate moment of failure when he betrayed his Lord and his best friend. And there sitting around that fire is the Lord himself risen from the dead, full of grace and truth for Peter. And Peter is forgiven. And at that moment, Peter's past was undone. His future became a new horizon because of the forgiveness of Jesus, who was born, by the way, out of the line of Judah and this Canaanite Tamar. Amen? You could say that. Amen. All right. You may not think you are redeemable anymore, but hear the good news. God is a God who can redeem your worst history and make something beautiful out of it. And it begins with confession. It begins with repentance, with a sincere desire, not an ability, and it is a sincere desire to start afresh. We have a loving and gracious God You have to really want to be damned to avoid His mercy. Judah is redeemed. And through her tenacity, Tamar is redeemed and brought into this family of God, into the family of promise. And through Tamar's good character would come the family through which Rahab the prostitute and Ruth the Moabitess and David the son of Jesse and Jesus the son of God would come to be born and rescue us from sin and death. That's good news, amen? Yes. And there's more. This story, while it assumes forgiveness, is really about more than forgiveness. It's about new life. Jesus didn't die just to say it's okay, you're forgiven. There was already a sacrificial system for that, by the way. That's why people killed stuff. You could be forgiven. Jesus died and rose to give you not just forgiveness for all time, but new life in Christ. You know, and it was through the crucible of life and humility of forgiveness that Judah becomes the kind of man 
who will lead his family to Egypt where they can be rescued from famine. He, it is the remade Judah whose very heart was changed from being cold and callous and selfish to becoming soft and warm and compassionate. Judah becomes a lover. From a slave trader to a man who will weep over the thought of his father's heartbreaking ever again. Judah becomes loyal to his father and loving toward his brothers, even to the point of death. Does that sound familiar? Judah's becoming like Jesus. That's our path. New life, new creation. And it starts with a repentant heart. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious and merciful God, thank you that those adjectives for you are true. That they're not just concepts, but they are proven in the fact that you became flesh, dwelt among us, died for us, rose over death, offer us new life. Oh, help us to receive it, Lord. We want to be remade. We get frustrated in our failings. We begin to wonder, can it really be? Lord, I pray that you would breathe new life into us. That you would encourage us in seeking after you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen.